Good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we rejoice, and we are glad in it. Paul, I'm privileged to serve as pastor of Victory Church of Charlottesville, where we exist to see people reconciled to God and to each other. Uh, I'm here this morning to make a quick announcement and then introduce our speaker. Um, and yes, I've intentionally uh, have had others speaking over the last month or so. Uh, it's not because I don't enjoy speaking. I absolutely do. Um, it's not because I don't want to uh, spend as much time preaching and speaking uh, as I can prior to this transition. Um, I absolutely do. I'm going to miss this more than I think I even realize. Uh, in many ways, I think it's what I was born to do and certainly called to do. And yet, um, I know God's not done with me yet, though he's clearly shifting us to another part of the vineyard in this season. But more important to me than what I enjoy doing is that you uh, are cared for uh, as best as possible as we make this transition. And so we're blessed with multiple voices at Victory, those connected to Victory, whether Grace Covenant in Chantilly, Grace Covenant in D.C., Divine Unity Community Church in Harrisonburg, and on and on and on. And as such, you'll continue to hear more um, from all of those voices and be well fed here, well encouraged, well taught, well inspired. And I wanted uh, you to know that more fully before we did even move on. And so that explicitly is why we've intentionally, even though still here, have had others uh, taking uh, place in the pulpit and we'll have the same this morning. And to that, have we not been blessed to that end? Um, have we not been blessed by those who have preached, which brings me to my primary announcement this morning before I get out of the way and allow Pastor Critcher to, to speak. Um, the transition team that I appointed several weeks ago has been working incredibly hard, praying diligently, uh, discerning next steps. Uh, I've been giving input as appropriate, um, and we've been kind of on two tracks and, and praying about the, um, uh, the interim pastor role and the permanent pastor role, right? Um, and we have prayerfully submitted to the Lord uh, our desire for an internal candidate to to emerge, at least for the interim pastor role. Um, somebody who knows us, somebody who's been with us, somebody who has embraced and walked out this vision. And to God be the glory, he's done just that. So I'm here to announce um, a transition, if you will, to the person who's going to assume leadership. And we've seen transitions in, throughout Scripture, Moses to Joshua Samuel to Saul, Paul to Timothy, Jesus to his apostles, and certainly I am none of those who passed on the baton, but I've learned and we are learning um, together what from those relationships we can we can embrace to help do this as best as possible. For example, Joshua was being trained long before Moses ever left, and we've had one in our midst who has led well. Um, our prayer team has been one that we established before we ever started Victory. And Troy Savage has led well. The team has grown qualitatively, quantitatively. Prayer lives have been immensely helped. People have plugged into the calls from across the country on a weekly basis, Monday nights, and now every single morning at 6.30 a.m. Troy Savage has preached here. He is sung in our Easter choir here, holding down that tenor section. Troy Savage has, has, has uh, he has done transitions from the pulpit when we were meeting in person facilitating devotionals for offering moments, led our 930 moments. And even before victory, he was preaching and teaching and being ordained, uh, seminary trained, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Most of all, Troy is committed to Jesus. He's committed to his family and he is humble. 
And so that is what I praise God for, because like me, <laughs> nobody has it all. Nobody can do everything. But my goodness, what God can do with a willing heart and an available spirit. Uh, and that, uh, with the already proven success of Troy in advancing God's kingdom, is who we have in Troy Savage and in his bride, Chantel Savage. Um, there will be more to come over this next few weeks. Troy will be engaging leadership teams, um, meeting with different groups to get uh, better acquainted than he already is with those groups, uh, meeting individually as appropriate with those who may not know him as well. I'll be meeting with him. Some of our um, sending pastors will also be pouring into him and, and connecting with him. And it's going to be a time over this next few weeks of him ramping up to serving in this role. And I should say and make it clear that he is not candidating for the permanent role. Um, Troy has agreed to help steward in this interim space, a very unique spot for sure, um, to, to facilitate the continuing of operations, continuing of discipleship, continuing of, of overseeing the big picture at Victory. Uh, and to that end, uh, you'll continue to hear voices, Troy's being one for sure, and those who have been preaching and, and, and teaching and doing so magnificently. Um, so you will continue to hear from those voices and those outside of Victory uh, and Troy, Reverend Troy, as I've affectionately called him as of late, will be the glue that holds a lot of that together. Our transition team, led by Joe Coleman, who I thank publicly now and in private, has met with Troy some concentrated time. Our sending pastor, Brett Fuller, has met with Troy and his bride some concentrated time. I have met with Troy and his bride some concentrated time in prayer. They have prayed separately and we have come to this point about which everyone on the team our sending pastors is excited and so with that embrace pastor troy embrace chantel embrace the success future of victory because their success is ours and continue to pray that god would provide for us the permanent pastor who will not just continue but take victory to even greater beyond this moment uh, we love you I love you. Taylor loves you. I know Reverend Choi and Chantel love you. Um, and we love each other. That's who we've been. That's who we'll continue to be um, to this community and even beyond. So much more to say, uh, but I'll just say, Troy, we love you. We thank God for you. We'll hear from Troy preaching wise again on June 20th. I would encourage you to go back and listen to his sermon from last week, which is still blessing me with each time that I go back and listen to it. Um, and again, you'll have some more intimate moments to spend hopefully with Troy. Now, having said that and, and thanking God continually for that, please drop in the chat your affirmation of and encouragement of Reverend Troy. If you have his number and his email, send him a note before the questions that he knows are going to come. Send him a note that you're praying for him, you're with him, and that you're looking forward to Victory Church, continuing to see people reconciled to God and each other under his leadership. Now we turn our attention this morning to Pastor Jim Critcher, Senior Associate Pastor at Grace Covenant Church. I've mentioned over time we are not alone. We've always built together with others. Pastor Jim has been one of those whose wise counsel, whose prophetic voice personally, more broadly, has impacted us as a church in ways we may not even realize. He coordinated, for example, a few years ago, 70 intercessors from across the world coming to Charlottesville to intercede, pray for our city, and help us discern what spiritual needs and battles and victories we would win, what ground God was calling us to gain here. So we thank God for you, Pastor Jim. Let's get straight into the word this morning. 
Turn in your Bible, if you would, to the book of John, the 11th chapter. And by way of introduction, I want to go back and just review some of the messages that I have spoken over the past few years, because I think that they provide, if you wish, an appropriate on-ramp even to this message this morning. Let me give you some sermon titles from the past three or four years. Course Correction. God using storms to blow us on course. From groaning to glory. How oftentimes God will use our groanings for His glory. Two years ago, I spoke a message entitled, New Wineskins. How before God ever does anything new with a people, He prepares a new wineskin to receive the new wine that He is pouring out. And that wine skin is the most flexible. It can contain the most wine closest to the moment of death from the point that it was taken from an animal. Interesting. And then last year, I spoke a prophetic message to the church entitled Out of Season. And the gist of that word was that God was going to bring the church into its greatest moment of being in season, even though everything around it would be out of season. That opposition would actually become opportunity. And this was the prophetic word coming into 2020. Who would have ever thought that it would have resulted in a global pandemic That certainly provided lots of opposition, but lots of opportunity for the church to truly be the church. But I want to talk about where are we now? What happens from this point forward? And I'm not talking about just the release of a vaccine and perhaps the the, the releasing of the constrictions and restrictions that have been on us for the past year or so. But I believe that God has three things in mind that he spoke to me beginning in the fall of last year, that this was coming, that we're coming into a moment of resurrection, of restoration and restitution. John, the 11th chapter, we find the story of Lazarus. We find, (coughs) excuse me, Mary, Martha. Friends of Jesus, brother of Lazarus. He's intimate with his family. They're friends. And word gets back to Jesus. Your friend, your friend, the one that you love, Scripture records, is sick. He's sick. Now, most of us, if we hear a report of someone that we're close with, And we hear that they're ill. The very first thing that we do is we go. We want to respond. We want to find out how can we meet that need. And yet in this account, it's fascinating that Jesus' response was not to go, but it was to wait. As a matter of fact, it says two more days. Why is that? Enough time For his beloved friend to die. Resurrection. The first of my three points this morning. 
You know, when many times the greatest expression of divine love is often found in delay. Now, that's a hard thing for us to hear because we live in such a temporal sense. We like the, 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 the human mindset that we have is that right now is the moment. Now is the time. I mean, we get frustrated in this moment if the popcorn in the microwave takes 30 extra seconds or if our Internet connection is not fast enough. And yet many times the things in, in the things of God, God himself will order delay around our lives. Now, we certainly have to discern whether or not it's a divine delay or a demonic delay. That's its own message. But in the delay, we find it's a very fragile time. It's in these moments where this danger, despair, discouragement, we lose courage. And then fear tries to entrap us. The disciples are talking among themselves and wondering what, 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 what is Jesus going to do about this and Certainly, he wants to get to Lazarus, who's sick. And finally, Jesus had to break it down for the boys. He's dead. He's not asleep. He's not sick. He is dead. And we see prior to their leaving to go to Bethany, Thomas, and many of us have felt much like Thomas over this past year. He said, well, we'll go with you and we'll just die as well because we have felt that way at some point during 2020. And culturally, it's where we've been. And many times we get in a moment like this and our response is usually one of two things. It's either flight or fight. And we've seen both of those responses culturally over this past year. But we find ample biblical precedent for delay. If we go back a few chapters in the book of John, all the way back to John, the fifth chapter, we find a man who had been lame for 38 years, lame at a public pool there, the pool of Bethsaida. And we had been, my, my wife and I, others who had been at Israel in the past couple of years, and they have archaeologically, they have found this pool. And this man had been there for a long time, obviously most of his life, Jesus had certainly passed this way many times before. This man was known in, in that place, in that community, as a lame man. He was there. He was a beggar. And in this particular moment, this day, Jesus says, do you want to be well? What a question. And in this moment, 38 years, this man had been lame. In the same place, in that moment, Jesus touched him. Why that day? If you find a few chapters later in John, the ninth chapter, a man blind from birth. The disciples saw this man. He said, who sinned this man's mother or father that he was born this way? It wasn't a callous question. It was a question related to the culture of the moment, which they believed that all congenital birth defects were the result of someone's sin. Jesus said, neither one. Now, understand, here's a man blind from birth. A man. So we know he was at least a teenager. And in this moment, Jesus touches him. But for years, 
whether the whether the the lame man in John 5 whether the blind man in John 9 we see many times he delays the same way he had done that with Lazarus and yet many times God will not only delay God will deny he will deny our response is good Christians and particularly good charismatic Pentecostal Christians is, well, maybe if I just do a little bit more, maybe if I, if, if I pray longer, pray louder, maybe if I just exercise a spiritual gift, maybe if I just can go to this particular meeting with this particular minister, he'll lay hands on me and something wonderful will happen. And yet there are times that God and God's sovereignty and God's God's plan for our lives. He will even deny certain things. The Apostle Paul writing in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, three times it says, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take away this, this thorn, this pain, this messenger from Satan. And God simply said, no, no, Paul, I'm not going to take it away. What an incredible statement to make. I mean, this is Paul. He's seen miracles, signs, and wonders. He had prayed. God had moved. And yet in this moment, God says, no, I've got something else more significant that I want to teach you. I want to show you something about my grace that it's only through my denial of your request you would never get it any other way. And in the case of Lazarus, not only was it Jesus' delay, but it was Jesus' denial that led to Lazarus' death. Well, and then the accusations begin, both for Martha and for Mary. As Jesus comes there to the town and they meet him and say, If you'd been here, our brother would not have died. How often over this past 12 months or so have we accused God the same way? Many of us have experienced some type of loss. Maybe we've had COVID. Maybe we've lost a family member. Maybe our, our economic situation has been profoundly affected as a result of that which has been happening around the world. And we've accused God, God, where are you in this moment? If you were here, this would not be happening. Mary and Martha, intimate with Jesus, accusing him if he'd been here. Even those, even those from the outside looking in said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept his man from dying, his friend? Wow. Delay into death. Why? Because many times God has already determined that which he is going to do. The account in John 9, this happened. So that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Remember, John told his disciples prior to leaving for Bethany, he said, it is for God's glory so that God's son might be glorified through it. Notice in an instant how the entire emphasis of the narrative has changed from Jesus friend sick now dead. Everything now has shifted from the need of the moment, from the need of one individual to Jesus being glorified through that 
pain in the midst of that moment. Wow. God had determined that even unto death, what was going to happen? You know, we've been living in a culture of death. The counts, whether it's now we're over a half a million in the United States of those who have lost their lives in this pandemic. And as I've already said, most of us in some way have been affected. But you see, death has a unique odor. It's unmistakable. It's something that we smell it and it's like we, we recoil back from it because we know that something's not right with what we are smelling. Even when Jesus gets to the tomb of Lazarus and he tells him to roll the stone away, they say, oh, no, 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 no. He's been in there for four days. And to quote the King James Version, he stinketh. Decompositions already happened, manifesting the death that's happened with your friend. Let me ask you a question, dear saint. What stinks around your life right now? You know, we associate all kinds of odors as getting God's attention. We find in Revelation about the incense of prayer that goes up to God the, as the priests were preparing the burnt offerings of the animals there on the altar and it would go up and that worship would be it would, it would hit the nostrils of God as worship. And so intercession, worship, all both of those things have these, these biblical pictures of an aroma. But can I submit something to you this morning? Is that death has an aroma that gets God's attention. He smells it. And he says, now I can be God in the midst of this. And here's a kingdom principle that we need never forget, particularly as we come to Easter, is that death always precedes resurrection. Oh, we love resurrection. We love the story of resurrection. We love resurrection power. We love the celebration of resurrection. But that which must always precede resurrection is death. Let me ask you this. How dead is dead around your life? You know, it's an amazing thing how we'll do everything that we possibly can to somehow postpone that moment of that declaration that everything that we can do humanly is not going to get it done unless God shows up. I tell the story that many years ago, prior to coming into ministry, my wife and I were musicians and I, I ran a business. And we got a tax bill from the Internal Revenue Service, that envelope that has the not for private use on it. And until, and let me say to you, if you get an envelope from the Internal Revenue Service, unless you can see a check peeking out of the window, it's rarely good news. And in this particular moment, there was a letter saying that we owed the federal government more money than I thought even existed in that moment. Wow. And I came and I told my wife, I said, we're done. We're, 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 we're financial corpses. We're the living dead. There's, there, I can't fix this. And I actually began to laugh. I, I think my wife thought I was maybe having a nervous breakdown. But rather than getting worried, rather than trying to figure out another way through to resuscitate my finances, I just said, God, it's dead. 
Nothing. There's nothing I can do. You're going to have to be God here. And that's when a series of financial miracles begin to be set forth in our lives. That within a period of six months, not only was the tax bill satisfied, but we were out of debt and we were launched into full-time ministry. But it started with a declaration of death so that God's resurrection could be made known. You know, we can acknowledge loss and we can still acknowledge Him at the same time. Jesus was inquiring of the sisters, do you believe? What do you believe about resurrection? What do you believe about your brother? Well, I believe, they said, that he'll be resurrected in the last days. But Jesus was in that moment wanting to move something from their theoretical theology into something of the moment, not something for tomorrow, but something for today, moving it from the theoretical to the experiential. And I believe this is something God is wanting to manifest in us right now in this Easter season in 2021 is to move us from theology, from the theoretical to something experiential that we can give testimony about. It was dead, but now it is alive. And that demonstration is always through resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing here that, that the very foundation of what we believe is based on resurrection. Saints, we don't talk much about resurrection. We don't talk much about death. We don't talk much about pain and suffering, it seems like, in the contemporary church today. And yet as a result, we miss a lot of the aspects of the Holy Spirit as comforter, as God and the resurrection life. As Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he said, I would that you would know this power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if there's no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. And he said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul created, if you wish, this, this foundation that it's all about resurrection. It's why in 1 Corinthians 15, it goes on and says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Resurrection is the central tenet of our faith. You say, well, Pastor Jim, what about Jesus as the Son of God and, and, and the Trinity? Yes, they're all important. But resurrection, if Christ was not resurrected, then everything that we believe about what happens to you and to me, what happens next is meaningless. Resurrection is central to everything that we believe. Other faiths. They have deities, they have sacred texts, they have codes of ethical living, rewards and punishments and liturgies and worship. And yet it's only the three monotheistic religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam that recognize resurrection. In the early church, it was about resurrection. It wasn't just about 
some aspect of, of, of ideology or some aspect of pneumatology or some theological fine point, but the buzz of the moment was resurrection. They could physically go to the tomb and they could see the rock and they could see nothing there. And they said, this is the place. This was the buzz. Resurrection. That's what got the early church in trouble as they begin to teach that. The disciples over and over again getting in trouble with the established religious community over what? Not a monotheistic God. Not the church's relationship to Rome. But it was the teaching on resurrection that truly got the religious authorities excited. Wow. And Lazarus? A dead man who's no longer dead? Imagine the post-resurrection Lazarus for a moment. Don't you think that folks saw Lazarus and they thought, that's the guy. They see him coming, they pass over to the other side of the street. They don't know what's next for him. What do you think Lazarus feared after he was raised from the dead? I would submit to you, probably not much. You see... When that last enemy is destroyed, death, the fear of death. Scripture says that all our lives have been held in slavery, bondage to that fear. Once that fear is released from our lives, the enemy has very little left to work with in you and in me. Wow. And God glorified his son. By raising Lazarus from the dead. God wants to glorify himself in the midst of your odiferous dying or dead circumstance right now. Why? So that he can get the glory. And the church has a role in this. Jesus says he's done the heavy lifting of raising Lazarus from death to life. He says to those as Lazarus somehow makes his way out, bound in strips of linen that they had buried him in, the command was to those present, unbind him. Could I submit to you, that is the role of the contemporary church, is to unbind people who all their lives have been held in bondage by the fear of death. And whether it's been COVID, whether it's the economy, whether it's the, uh, the, the political systems that are rising and falling around the world. Let me just tell you, God is telling us unbind and it begins with the individual. We've got to allow ourselves to be unbound before we can unbind anyone else. Wow. Resurrection. But then Restoration was the second thing God spoke to me. I'll submit to you that I think that the great challenge for the church, at least in the United States in this moment, is this reputation. The events of the past year, the political factions and process, the reconciliation challenges that continue to face us as a nation, as a people, has greatly fractured the church. It's prophets, quote unquote, made bold predictions about the outcome of the election, and many of them were just flat wrong. And it strained the credibility of the church. 
And saints, hear me. More gifted exegetes of the word, the means of communicating that word through greater technology or another Zoom meeting or, 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 or a new web design is not going to get it done. God wants to do it the old-fashioned way. Paul wrote it this way once again to the church in Corinth. He said, when I came to you, my message was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Demonstration. And let me tell you, saints, there's no greater demonstration than resurrection. It's why decades later, the resurrection of our finances in, in our family, it remains a testimony I love telling over and over and over again. And I believe that God is wanting to birth the church into a new Pentecost. The same way that the birth of the church was marked the benchmark, the hallmark was the sending of the Holy Spirit, the release of power, signs and wonders done by the apostles. I believe God wants to mark the church in this day in the same way. But to do that, we need a new Pentecost. We need a new resurrection. We need new wine poured into new wineskins. And I believe that the greatest threat to the church today are not those pressures from the outside in, but I believe that the greatest threat to the church is us simply returning to that which we did pre-COVID. God would not have brought us into such a global disruption that He did not want to birth something new through it. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And one of my greatest concerns, saints, is that the church will return, do what we did because it, quote, worked then. Hmm. I hope you want more. I know I do. And then I'll close with this. The third thing God spoke to me was restitution. And of the three, this is the one that I hesitate to mention. Because many people key in on this aspect of show me the money. I really believe that these first two, if, 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 if they could be placed in priority order, they're there. Resurrection, restoration. But restitution, certainly we've all had some loss over this past season. But the principle in the scripture is as you've sown in tears, you will reap in joy. We look at the account of Job. By God's testimony, a righteous man, no one like him. And then God spends 42 chapters tearing the man's life apart or allowing Satan to do it, but at God's direction. It's an entire book of the Bible that gives us great pause, creates tremendous consternation. And yet at the end in chapter 42, when God had finished working in and through Job, that which God wanted to establish through him, he began the process of restitution. And he gave him some specific promises that I'll highlight because I believe these promises are for you and for me. One were he gave him twice as much as before. 
Some people have kind of glibly uh, sort of monikered this double for his trouble. Okay, maybe. But we find that not only did he give him twice as much as before, but he, he moved him into real wealth. He restored relationships. There was an unusual fertility. Ten children by his new wife. And of those, it says that he had daughters. He named those daughters. They're named, they're named in Scripture. And what's so remarkable, remarkable about this, it's the only account that we find in the Bible of daughters inheriting alongside brothers. Now, there's one other account, but uh, the, 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 the daughters were trying to keep land in the family, and they went and they made an appeal, but they were, they were the only siblings left alive to inherit. But in this case, the daughters inherited alongside their brothers. And there's something here, I believe, that God is going to raise up ladies in this day to step fully into your inheritance in a new and a unique way. It says there was a blessing on the latter part of his life. And, he, and I like this part as an old guy. It says he lived a long life, old and full of years. Yes, we, we talk a lot about next generation. We talk about young people. We talk about children and reproduction. But I'm glad to know that us old guys still have a, still have a part to play. And that God is intending to add, if you wish, days, months, and years to our calendars as well. What have I said? Three things. I believe God is coming to manifest and demonstrate resurrection, restoration, and restitution. Matthew, the fourth chapter, says that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. We have certainly lived in a land under the shadow of death for the better part of a year. But let me talk about timing for a moment. Many times as God speaks to me for a year, He'll speak to me at the, usually at the end of a year for the next year. And many times that word is for a 12-month period of time. But I believe in this particular moment, the same way that it speaks of the dawn rising. You know, it's very difficult as you watch the sun come up to pinpoint that exact moment that darkness has fully yielded to light. Now, I know that the meteorologists and they give us this, this exact time of when, if you wish, uh, the, the dawn has come. But for us that are observing it, it's so gradual many times as it's difficult to pinpoint that exact moment. And I believe that this word is going to unveil itself and unfold as the darkness yields to light over this next period of time. And I believe it's not just going to be a 12-month, but this is going to be a 24-month process across 21 and 22 as we see the reality of these words unfold. So what needs the resurrection power of God in your life this morning? Ask another way, what stinketh? What is that thing that is just, it's been hanging on for so long and you just wonder, is it ever going away? Let me just tell you that that odor, it goes up as an incense to God. He smells it and he's on the move. 
in his right timing, the same way that he delayed getting to Bethany to raise Lazarus, he's on the way. He's coming to resurrect, to restore that which has been damaged over this past season. I believe the greatest days of the church are yet upon us. And he's coming to bring restitution to that which has been lost. As you press into this word, God himself is going to speak to you the same words that he spoke at that tomb that day. Come forth. Come forth. Saints, take hold of this word. Believe it. And watch God perform it in your midst. God bless you. Thank you.